as everyone knows, we, we're delighted that Dr. Izzy Moore uh, from Cardiff Metropolitan University has, has accepted our invitation. Really excited. And thank you again, Izzy, for, for doing so. Uh, researcher and lecturer in sports and exercise medicine in Cardiff. PhD was on running self-optimization. So what we want to sort of uh, talk around is, is that topic, uh, uh, running optimization, running economy and, and, and things like that. Um, we'll, uh, anyone watching, feel free to, to fire away with questions um, as we go along. We'll, um, we'll start with the questions that came in, in the order that they sort of came in, and, um, and we'll just see where it takes us, uh, if that's okay with everyone. Um, so... First off, a really easy one for you, I'm sure, uh, your, your bread and butter, but a, a pretty solid question because it might be something that listeners aren't fully aware of, but what, what is running economy? Yes, yeah, so um, running economy, it's a, it's a determinant of, of running performance. Um, so there's a few key determinants and it's just one of them. It's the rate of oxygen you consume at a given submaximal speed. So the two kind of important components there are submaximal and, and a, at a given speed. So we can essentially standardize your oxygen consumption uh, by your body mass, but also by either the distance that you go or the speed that you're going at. So effectively, if you have a better running economy, it means your oxygen consumption is lower. So it's kind of it takes a little bit to get your head around that concept. So better is actually a lower in that respect. Um, and it's got strong links to an individual's kind of running performance, um, but it's much better at kind of distinguishing between runners who actually have a similar VO2 max, so their maximum oxygen consumption. Um, but when you have a fairly wide-ranging maximum oxygen consumption, so like you know, me versus someone like Paula Radcliffe, for example, she's got far superior VO2 max than I ever would. So, so that, that would actually differentiate us a lot better than our running economy, uh, even though mine would still also be worse, worse than hers as well. So it's, it's one of the main determinants of, of performance. Awesome. And a second part, like, do, do runners care? Or should should runners care? And I don't just mean your Paula Radcliffe, your elite runners, your runners that that that, that come through our sports and exercise medicine clinics, um, injured or uninjured. Like, uh, should they care? And, and in your experience, do they care? Yes, it's, it's, it's quite a good question because uh, most most probably would never actually know what their running economy is because you need to be able to come into the lab, measure your your oxygen consumption, but. Um, in essence, if you improve your, your oxygen consumption, you could either run further, because uh, you can run for longer, or you can potentially run faster for uh, the same kind of oxygen consumption as you could previously. So theoretically, you could finish a race quicker. Um, I guess the, 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 and the other argument is if you have a lower oxygen consumption, it, your running should also feel a bit easier. So you, you might expect the kind of perceived exertion to also uh, decrease as a result. So it could get people out you know, running a bit more as they get more comfortable running and feel a bit, a bit more easier to do so. Um, that said, uh, like I said, in terms of your V2 max, for, for a lot of us will probably be our main determinant. So if, if, if you're just kind of running and trying to hit the performance gains, um, that's probably the thing to focus on in, in the beginning. Um, and for your average runner who just wants to run, it's, it's just one of those parameters um, that is to be mindful of, um, but may not necessarily be the reason why you haven't come first, for example, in a way. <laughs> and, and when it comes to the way we run, you know, and in podiatry, we're always observing people, as I'm sure you know, like gait analysis uh, within our musculoskeletal clinics is, is essentially one of our, our, our key tools. So we're always looking for things. And we've been guilty in the past of sort of comparing what we see to some predetermined definition of normal or ideal. So when it comes to running technique, I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Is, is there, in the context of economy or efficiency, performance, is there one best way to run for everyone? Uh, short answer, no. Uh, <laughs> there. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there are some, some parameters that have more weight to them in terms of being linked 
who are low oxygen consumption, but a lot of that data is actually using cross comparisons. Um, so it's it's harder to draw firm conclusions by yeah, comparing me and you running. There'll be multiple reasons why we run differently, not just because we are trying to have a, as low oxygen consumption as possible. Um, but there are some kind of standout ones in terms of from an economy point of view, it's, it's more about the push off phase. So can you actually have a bit more flexion through the lower limb as you're pushing off? Um, so at the knee and at the ankle specifically, which makes kind of intuitive sense because you want to push forwards. And if you extend fully at the limb, you'd be pushing upwards. Um, so it helps to propel you forwards. And that's been probably the, one of the most consistent findings in, in the literature. Um, but there's a, there's a whole host of debate in terms of contact time, foot strike, but actually they have not very consistent evidence linking them to, to running economy. So, um, and again, it's, it's going to be made up of, you know, your injury history, uh, what shoes you're also wearing. All of, there's going to be a whole host of different factors that, that also play into how you run. Um, but minimising your kind of metabolic demand is, is so ingrained in us. It's, it's one of, uh, it's how we develop kind of our walking and running. Um, it's really inherent in what we do. Um, so we will all find essentially the path of least resistance. And that path is going to be slightly different. But we, there are a few commonalities uh, in it, so mainly the push-off phase. Great. So touching on what you just said, and one of our other questions, and I think it feeds in quite nicely, is um, you know, this, this concept that our own, I guess, uh, I guess it's, our, is it's driven by the central nervous system, but we sort of self-select the most metabolically efficient way to get from A to B. Yeah. Um, it's clear then that our mechanics are linked to our, our metabolics, is this self-optimization completely unconscious and, and, and driven by the central nervous system? I mean, how do we self-optimize? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think we, we probably need, it's a really uh, powerful avenue of research that we probably need to delve into more. Because at the moment, we know that essentially as you acquire more experience, more exposure to running, um, or you could apply it to probably most other movements, that you invariably find and fine tune what you're doing um, and that will help lower your oxygen consumption and your energetic demand. So at the moment it, it does seem to be a fairly kind of subconscious process of our system. I, I, I term it as a bit basically we like to be lazy um, that's, that's a little bit flippant um, but you know look at just how we sit most of the time. Uh, these days it's, it's quite slouched because that's easiest for us and then we just extrapolate that to running as well and um, it, it's a, a coming back to that path of least resistance um, I don't I don't think many people think about how they run so therefore it, it is that subconscious process and and most of us have never been taught how to run so we only have what it feels like and the feedback and feed forward systems that we have um, that we're not thinking about to, to use. Yeah. As a scientist, like a scientist in the truest sense of the word, how does it, how do you feel? What's your reaction, either internal or, or, you know, audible when you read the blogs, the, the running magazines, the, the, the sort of tabloid headlines of forefoot striking is king or everyone must run it with a cadence of 180. Yeah. Um, you know, do you, well, Here's a, here's a question. Clearly, it's not the case. Do you just kind of go, well, they don't know what they're talking about, and do you get on with your life? Or do you do you fight the good fight? Because that sounds like it would be exhausting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I tend, I tend to, to leave, leave them to their, to their arguments. Um, <laughs> occasionally, I might, um, might dip my toe in. Um, and I think a lot of them come out from a very, very different, you know, they're coachy. I'm not a coach, I'm not a running coach by any means. So I, I'm, as you say, I'm coming at it from a pure academic point of view. Um, and some of the things that you do see, I think, have merit. Um, uh, and sometimes we, we, we've done a study which looked at kind of, can when coaches look at runners, what do they pick up on when they rate their efficiency? Um, and they all seem to pick up on the same thing. And yet there is little evidence to it. So things like kind of the upper body rotation 
and what the arms are doing. Um, but just because there's no evidence, it's because we haven't looked into it. So actually maybe the coaches are a step ahead of us. Um, and actually, so sometimes I think we probably both need to get to where we actually have a sensible conversation rather than trying to be too polarised in one view. Um, because I've certainly, since being at Cardiff Met for the past few years, you know, I've had coaches, clinicians that you're able to talk to. Um, and I think it's about you learning what they know uh, and using that to inform maybe a research question or, or where we go. So mm. we need to look at the upper body, for example, because that's what coaches folks look on. We actually don't know that much. So um, they may be ahead of us in that respect. Yeah, but the, yeah. The, the problem with when you dip your toe in to start challenging some of the nonsense, um, you, you, you've got to be prepared for the hate mail, the vitriol. Like it, <laughs> it, it, never, it, never, it almost never goes well. Um, you start fight, fighting anyone with a little bit of science, um, it normally goes downhill from there. <laughs> to, give this, to give this context, Craig picks a flight yeah. online every single day of his life. So there, there is that to consider as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's not wrong with it. I mean, I've done it on occasions and you, you, it just goes into this weird rabbit hole where you're <laughs> no, realising you've got there and you just kind of go, Oh, I've had enough. <laughs> it's <laughs> ten o'clock at night. This isn't worth it. I'm yeah, just... I need to. I need to get better at walking away for sure. It's extraordinary what what goes on. I mean, you, you, the the employers get emails that they shouldn't employ you anymore. Um, you, you know, like this is not not so much in running, but I'm involved in a few other areas, and and they they, they look for your children on Facebook and try and contact them. You know, luckily they can't wow. find mine, but this is the sort of nonsense wow. you, you deal with in social media when you start to go down that pathway. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's, and, yeah. And people pick and choose what they, yeah. a couple of times I've maybe been involved, they, they start off trying to talk science, uh, yeah. and, but they pick what, what suits. And then when you... <laughs> <laughs> wade in and they start going down the practical side and you're like well we're not that's a different question yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, or, or the other classic one is they use they use youtube as a reference <laughs> you know as something credible <laughs> anyway next, um, next question here. yeah yeah bring bringing it bring it bring it back on track um uh, so within within our world, as you know, and I know you know this because you, you're on social media, and you know within the world of clinicians, podiatrists, physios, we've been um, tinkering with with running retraining for for several years now, for sure. Um, and one of the things that we we sort of uh, tend to subscribe to the most is is only really doing it in the context of pathology. So certainly, it probably one reason is probably that we we tend to see people when they're injured. We don't tend to see uninjured people. But we're trying to be as evidence-based as possible. We know this is you know, a fairly emerging field. So we, we shorten stride length in the context of patellofemoral pain, uh, for example. Um, and every now and then, a, a runner will sort of say, um, how's this going to affect my performance? And, and I guess the question to you is, you know, does this, what, if any, are the consequences of us making these changes uh, on, on, the, on a runner's performance? It's uh, certainly something that, um, as I, I mentioned before, it's an area that I'm actually starting to look at more and more anyway, um, because we, I think pretty much almost every acute intervention um, that has been probably done before about 2010 or so, essentially finds as soon as you manipulate the, someone's running gait acutely, oxygen consumption goes up. So whether that's footwear, whether that's stride length and frequency, foot strike. In, in the main, we tend to see oxygen consumption increases when you're playing around with someone's habitual, uh, their, their normal running pattern. Um, and stride length, really, stride length and stride frequency get a lot of attention because they're nice, really simple metrics to measure from our point of view, and people understand them uh, as well. And stride length, we know that if you actually have a... We only manipulate it a little bit, so about 3% shorter than what someone's already doing. Uh, there are certain kind of loading that, that does reduce, not massively, but it does, and their oxygen consumption won't change. But once you get out to increasing it, oh, sorry, or increasing or decreasing it by 6 7% or more, oxygen consumption will increase so there's kind of there's probably this narrow range that we can 
play around with a little bit, but once you start kind of making larger changes, um, invariably it's going to increase. Uh, but what we're, some of the work that um, I'm waiting for my co-author to red pen the paper I've just sent them, but um, is looking at how we can best deliver those kind of changes, how we can best ask people to change how they're running. And is there a kind of interaction between actually how you ask them to do the change uh, and your auction consumption as a result? So can we actually try and get some biomechanical changes that we want, but with the smallest impact on, on your auction consumption? So kind of going down the, the motor, using motor learning principles. Um, so I've got a very intelligent sports psychologist because that's way, way beyond my field to, to help with that. Um, but by and large, most biomechanics studies keep the intervention simple and oxygen consumption normally goes up. And, and does that come back to what we touched on earlier, which is, and I seem to remember Joe Hamill uh, at a conference saying this once, which is the body self-selects the most efficient way to get from A to B metabolically. And it's rather, rather arrogant of any of us to assume that we know better. So we make a change and it, and it comes at a metabolic cost. And, and it's pretty much that simple in, in, in a one-line summary. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Because the, what I think what drives our selection, firstly, is kind of acute, what I kind of term ouch pain. So, you know, it, does that acutely hurt in a sharp way? If it doesn't, then you start to optimise because of your energetic demands, um, your, your muscular demands uh, and you prioritize therefore economy and and your safety so you're running in a way that means you're not going to fall over the kind of the overuse injuries that most runners get aren't something that we can really detect so therefore our technique probably isn't prioritized to actually mitigate against the, those kind of in, overuse injuries so then once we start playing with it because of the overuse injuries, we're, we're going against how our system has kind of developed our running technique. Yeah, I've, I've got a question on that. Yeah, I've got a, had a question come in from Mike, and I've still got a question along the similar lines. But what Mike asked is, well, if, if well, I'll paraphrase it. If we learn to change our running gait and maintain that efficiency, um, he's asking about what about the end of the race? You know, trying to maintain that from start to finish, and then that those comments just made about that self-optimization, the body does it efficiently. I always find it interesting without getting into the heel strike debate is how many more people are heel striking towards the end of a marathon than the beginning. Um, yeah. Cause surely when you're fatigued, the body is going to really want to find the most efficient way to be. Well, why are more people heel striking? So, so I guess the question's really about um, if, if we change it, m maintaining it and then, if we've got a fight to maintain it um, yeah. towards the end of the marathon, well, was it the right, right in the first place? <laughs> yeah. 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 And the kind of fatigue elements are really mm. interesting because there's, there's almost two kind of arguments to the fatigue. So physiologists tend to say when we fatigue, our biomechanics change because we can't produce the force mm. and it's just a result of fatigue. Whereas mm. the more biomechanist uh, minded individuals say that as we, as we fatigue, we, we are self-optimizing given the state that we're in. So if we can't produce the force the same way, we will find a technique that helps to essentially maintain or the fact that we're trying to run and mean that we don't kind of just collapse. Because if we didn't change how we're running, we'd probably collapse sooner, is, is one theory. Um, and so there's this kind of, you're optimizing under different uh, scenario, well, different circumstances because of the the muscular fatigue that's going on so it's kind of a, a re-optimizing that's occurring so yeah. when people start heel striking um it may be because of the, the kind of demands that have got been going through the calf if they're more of a midfoot forefoot strike uh runner yeah. they, they can't maintain those kind of force protections anymore so yeah. they switch uh, and we know that people tend to have really long uh lengthen their strides with fatigue as well um so reducing their stride frequency so they're opting to take fewer steps um uh, not many people have played around with whether actually if you manipulated that towards the end of the run what actually happens do they do they finish sooner or do they finish later or the same so i think there's a lot still to be learned in terms of the fatigue and how how whether we our changes are the best changes for us or not 
Sure. Now, Emma's just asked a, a question, uh, which I'm going to answer the first part of her question is, but the first part of her question is, should all gait retraining podiatrists have respiratory gas measurement kits in their clinics? Um, no. But the next part of her question I think is relevant. And again, I'll, I'll paraphrase her question. It's about, well, what other proxy measures are there? So if we're going to be doing any gait retraining for um, pathological reasons, yeah. is there anything we should be looking at and keeping an eye on or proxy measures to do with uh, running efficiency and economy. Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's a couple of things that spring to mind that again, it's been something that I've been playing around with in the past couple of years in the lab. It's heart rate is a nice straightforward one. Most people have a, yeah. most runners these days carry one with them anyway. So at sub, doing sub maximal running, mm. um, heart rates are a good surrogate measure for kind of, as we call it, field testing, mm-hmm. um, because once you kind of hit the steady state with your oxygen consumption, you also kind of hit the steady state with, with heart rate as well. Um, and the other one is just simply getting getting someone used to the rating of perceived exertion. So uh, going from 6 to 20, 20 being <laughs> no more, I'm flat on, my, flat on my back, can't continue, I'm exhausted, 6... Um, being just like we're sat now, uh, very little effort. Um, and watching kind of, we, we use both central fati- uh, central RPE, which is basically your breathing effort, and we also use something called peripheral RPE, which is kind of the what we use as the lower limb muscular effort. And um, what we tend to see is they both increase uh, when you manipulate your running gait. Intuitively, again, because you're, you're playing around with someone's uh, normal mechanics, but maybe over time you would expect that those, those RPE values should should decrease as it becomes easier uh, and a little bit more ingrained. So, so RPE, uh, simple RPE, just a number, get them to, to give that to you, or, or heart rate would be good. Yeah, I I, um, I think that when we when we see injured people, so we see patellofemoral pain, and we ask them to increase their cadence, shorten their stride length. Uh, and, and then they say to us, well, what's the effects this can have on my performance? It's an easy question to answer because usually at this point, they're not actually running that much because they're, in, <laughs> because they're injured in pain. So it's, that, that isn't really a, the, the issue. Coming on to a sort of second part of that question, what about if every now and then a, a completely pain-free runner will present them to us in our clinics? They'll sneak through. They'll just want a bit of an MOT. Mm-hmm. Their, friend, their friend told them they should have a gait analysis. So they're completely uninjured. They've got their own ideas out what what be, what best is yeah um should we should we be changing the way people run in the context of these sort of i don't want to use the word marginal gains but you know these small potential sort of improvements in performance i mean firstly i mean do we have the the do we have a really robust sort of evidence base to support that practice no <laughs> beautiful beautiful um in your in your in your opinion with all the work you've done is it something that, that we can as long as we're transparent with the runner we can entertain and if so how do we go about doing that yeah well, my, i normally use it if it's not broke uh don't fix it so but i i've i've been asked kind of similarly to you by a few people to look at how they run so i i, I do and i not as i say it's normally kind of that push-off phase um and although there's little, little evidence, kind of, is there just some uncharacteristic or, or large asymmetries going on? Um, again, more from a rotation point of view and what the arms are doing, because some people do very weird and wonderful things with the arms. And if the arms are doing weird and wonderful things, then the legs um, don't have much hope because they have to counteract the rotation that's going on at the top. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I tend to team it up with... Okay, so here's some of the key things in terms of um, the push-off. Um, trying to actually bring the normally bring the leg a little bit closer to the body. Now that doesn't necessarily mean their stride length decreases. Um, if they kind of push off with a better force, they may still get the length. Um, but we know if you bring the foot a bit closer to the body, then your your braking forces should should reduce. So in terms of the deceleration you're having to do. Uh, that may reduce, which kind of uh, theoretically has, has a fairly good um, link to potentially a lower energetic demand. Um, and those kind of, if I was ever going to say anything, it would be small kind of changes, just 
to get used to, but I would never really advocate kind of large, profound changes like changing what their foot, you know, going from a, a rear foot to a forefoot or or things like that. Because mm-hmm. I, I, we, I just don't think there's the evidence to really um, to pursue that kind of train of thought with people. Yeah, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, question about running shoes which uh, um, are, are something we love talking about in our world. Uh, and this is from a friend and a colleague of ours of the shows, uh, Dr. Simon Spooner. Uh, if you were going to design a running shoe with, yeah. the aim of, with the aim of metabolic efficiency, performance, for a, for a given individual, let's say that, that was me, um, what, what, what variables of mine are you, what are you measuring? And how does that potentially translate into the design of the shoe? Um, so there's things like muscle activity so actually rather than you know the kit just the kinematics and the kinetics so your movement and force actually looking at muscle activity and the co-activation of the limb just you're coming into contact with the ground because there's this kind of theory of uh, cost of cushioning uh, hypothesis which is um, there's an optimal level of cushioning and that actually when we remove the cushioning of a shoe, um, our body has to do that. So we have to somehow cushion ourselves when we hit the ground because we've got a moving object hitting a stationary object. Um, so the, 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 the argument from footwear people is that, that shoes help with that and therefore actually help lower our, our metabolic cost. Um, but there are some studies which actually show that there's this kind of optimal level of cushioning too much and it's, it's detrimental, not enough, um, and your body's having to do too much of the work. So potentially looking at kind of when we start playing around with the cushioning, what happens to the, it's called muscle tuning as your leg kind of impacts the ground. Um, and also, um, Things like cushioning can play a role in, in stiffness. Um, we, don't, we know a little bit in regards to kind of some global measures in terms of leg stiffness uh, and oxygen consumption, kind of a higher leg stiffness, lower oxygen consumption. Um, but at the joint level, we don't know enough. And I think we, we need some more um, very data-rich studies which have joint stiffness, muscle activity, um, and kinematics to get a really kind of full picture of what's going on. So I'd focus a little bit on muscle activity in terms of cushioning for, from a shoe point of view and metabolic cost. And I've just thought actually, when we, sorry, Craig, when we talk about um, stiffness and we and tuning and, you know, muscle tuning, we kind of can't help but think of the work of Ben O'Neill and the guys from, from Calgary. And two yeah. things come to mind. And the first is when he was uh, asked to consult for Cirque du Soleil. And he looked at the stiffness of the stage, which was stiffer in some parts and, and not in others. Uh, I think because of where the, where the beams were. And he, he made the stage, I believe, I'm remembering correctly, a, a uniform stiffness um, so that the central nervous system could predict what that stiffness was and, and modulate the leg stiffness. And, and they saw Cirque du Soleil injuries really, really reduce. And then on the performance side of things, we've got the, what the I think it was Tom McMahon did the tuned track at Harvard University where I think, I can't remember exactly whether he made it more compliant or more stiff, but the the times at that university were were just, that was where everyone ran their fastest times. And I guess that's kind of where Nike were trying to go with their sub two efforts and the shoe. Uh, They were uh, trying to tune the shoe. Uh, I don't know how much they tried to, were they trying to tune it to the surface or to the runner's leg? I'm not sure, but do you see that? Is there merit there? I mean, I mean, whether, I mean, well, here you go. Two questions. Firstly, is there merit there? Secondly, if someone's going to really, really break that sub two mar- uh, hour marathon time, where's the answer lie? Is it, is it surely it can't all be in the shoe? I mean, from a from a scientific point of view, from a, someone who's studied the economy of running, if that is possible, where where do we? Where's the big win coming from? Yeah, I'll tackle the the first part. Um... <laughs> Sorry, that was really long. Sorry. <laughs> um... There's some really interesting work actually in terms of this kind of this interaction between surface stiffness and and leg stiffness, um, and it basically involves kind of changing the the stiffness of the surface, um, and then they had actually some surfaces where they camouflage 
the surface. So people were uh, kind of unanticipated, uh, whether it be harder or softer. Uh, and essentially what we try and do is we alter what our leg does to make sure our centre of mass does the same thing. So our centre mass follows this kind of same um, bounce in, in how high it bounces. Um, and we'll modulate our leg uh, based on what the surface is giving us to achieve that. So but it does fit in with the, the, the shoes um, and playing around with the, the shoe stiffness um, because we all, we all like to bounce at a certain frequency. That's kind of our resonance frequency and that's this notion of stride frequency is that um, people feel a lot more comfortable changing their stride length than their, their stride frequency uh, by and large. Um, uh, I think I think in terms of trying to break break a two hour and and the shoe it's, it comes I hate the phrase marginal gains but it, it comes <laughs> to really about finding what works for the athlete uh, and probably having the same type of shoe across athletes isn't isn't the answer mm. because um, of differences in in body types in muscle fiber in in their general running um, and then the stiffness that's within their system already. Um, and it's, it, it's a really interesting business because, you know, I'd arguably you could say that maybe you should change some of the little things about how they're running. If it's, if it's those small percentages you're after, but you, for them to be able to achieve that for a whole marathon, um, and it comes back to what Craig was talking about in terms of fatiguing and, and maintaining that. It's it's pretty hard, um, and you, you'd need to almost be doing it for you know I don't know a year or so to be able to run and keep that and not have to think too much about doing it. And that that's part. It's kind of this not thinking element as well. That's kind of uh, plays a role in uh, someone's overall fatigue. Uh, and therefore has an often effect on their oxygen consumption. Um, so in terms of footwear, I think getting the best out of the footwear will, will only be helpful, but I don't think, I think they did a, a really interesting few studies. They had some great biomechanists over in the States doing it far more intelligent than me. So um, uh, I like the, the idea of it, uh, but maybe we still need to know a little bit a little bit more from an individual kind of perspective. I think. You know, I, I think exactly it's going to be very subject specific. And you know, to me, the two hour marathon is going to happen when there's incremental improvements in everything. And one of those everythings is the shoe. Um, and that's going to be, to me, matching the amount of cushioning to the individual to get the, the, the subject specific in, uh, return. But just on that, and I think you might have been referring to them before, that, that obviously the, the Nike Vaporfly 4%, which was the shoe developed for the breaking two. And I find it really interesting because you, if you look at the, from Roger Cram's group, the, the, the name, that's where the 4% came from. But if, yeah. if you look closer at the data, there were a few people a bit more than 4% and there were a few people closer to 1%. So even responding to that shoe yeah. was very, very subject specific. So that shoe must have, well, must have been tuned or done right for somebody in that group that was going for it. But what I find interesting, especially when you look at some of the running shoe groups who've gone out, they've gone out and brought the shoe expecting to run 4% faster. And, and some of them are running 10% faster. Now, whether that's, you know, or, or, and, and others are not doing, achieving their personal best in these shoes and they're actually quite disappointed. And I, I, I find that quite amusing observing that going on. But what I want to ask is they showed on the mean response and the, the variables they measured, there was a 4% improvement in running economy. What's the strength of the evidence linking that to, to performance? Like what, what's the, you know, it's a predictor, but how strong a predictor is, is that when it actually comes to on the road? Yeah. You know, there aren't as many studies as there you, you think there should be. In fact, I, I don't really know of many that have, have made that direct. Oh, we've changed something here. We've changed their running economy. Like now let's get them on the track and see what happens. Um, there are a few, I think they tend to be more kind of like, I think it may be up to 5k. As a, as a maximum distance yeah. um, and like I say I think you only really see them when it's a, a homogenous group of people yeah. um, that, that are kind of already fairly similar and that's when you'd actually see those differences so 4% for you and I um, could be me waking up on a good day or waking up on a bad day 
um, really, um, uh, you know, because and I'd run the the race completely differently. So four um, percent though is 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 a considerable chunk. You know, in training, we we've only really seen up to eight percent improvements with a, a dedicated training program over you know, 10 to 12 weeks. So 4% just by changing shoes is, is incredible, really. Mm. Um, the only, the biggest change in running for me was um, by my, my supervisor, actually, Andy Jones, who was involved in Nike Breaking 2. He, he tracked Paula Radcliffe mm-hmm. for nine years. And over those nine years, she improved by 15% her running economy, which coincided with her doing, breaking the, world record even though her VO2 max stayed relatively the same throughout that mm. nine-year period um so at that level yes that you, you're gonna see these but I think just for the general runner um I, mm. I I don't know how much difference it, it would really make really yeah. but they're, they're rushing out and buying this shoe I mean it's it's a racing shoe it's not a training shoe um they complain that they break down after a week of use but I think at the elite level, these are a one-race shoe. <laughs> but they're, 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 it's, it's extraordinary the expectations people now have of the shoe. Um, yeah. But all the reviews are positive. I've tried them, and, and you, you certainly do notice them. Um, they're yeah. very, very different. Um, yeah. Haven't tried. Haven't brought a pair to run in, but yeah. You know, next question, Ian. <laughs> so, d- dare dare we go here, Craig? Dare we go here? Um, Barefoot running, <laughs> everyone's favourite topic since 2010. Let's let's start scientifically, and then let's see. Hopefully, we won't get too many bites from any audience members. We're talking about performance and economy. That's what this 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 pod chat live is about. It's not about injury, which is where all of the the real passion and, and enthusiasm, uh, odour enthusiasm comes. In the context of performance. Uh, are there any performance benefits of being barefoot, running barefoot? And if so, what are they? Yeah. Uh, so from a, a purely kind of numbers level, when you are carrying less weight on your foot, your oxygen consumption will, will be lower. Okay. So just purely from you're just carrying less weight. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a, almost you, you could view it as a technology kind of, enhancement it's like having an aerodynamic bike and and why a lot of cyclists have light but like uh light bike frames um so having lighter shoes um invariably does mean that there's a, a lower oxygen consumption and we can get rid of them completely uh and that's the lowest weight that we would have and it also means that if you when you're swinging the leg round um you have less resistance to that swinging so it's a lower moment of inertia because you've got less weight on your foot and we know that there's a there's a really interesting study that looked at walking which said that if you um if you have weight on your foot rather than on on a thigh it has the biggest changes to to your metabolic demand of that movement so carrying chunky shoes means you've got a greater mechanical demand to moving that leg so there, there are those kind of links uh, to it. Um, but purely if we kind of just ignore the maths side of it and more of the kind of biomechanics changes, if we, if we talk about more of a typical barefoot running gait, dare I say it, um, uh, we, the, the leg does, tend to, uh, does seem to be a little bit stiffer. So that some of um, my earlier work has kind of the less vertical oscillation going on, a little bit more plant flexion as you push off, which um, kind of links back to that less uh, extension during the push-off phase. Um, but I think, I don't think I would ever recommend taking shoes off from a performance point of view um, because of the fact that actually we've got this impact modulating uh, behaviour that's, that's probably more important than the derived performance benefits and it will also come down to what surface you're on uh, and that again that kind of interaction with the, with the cushioning mm. element um and potentially a little bit more so than your than your shoes which can maybe compensate whereas now you, you don't have that your muscles may have to do a hell of a lot of work um uh, to to run barefoot 
so so yeah i don't think i don't think i would ever as i say recommend uh, from a performance point of view you'd be better off running barefoot uh, yeah. and I, I i recall well i i know of people on twitter and social media that wheel out this this uh, i don't know whether the fact is the right word to call it that for every uh, for every hundred gram of shoe yeah then yeah. It, it correlates to about one percent of, of of sort of economy is that is that uh, it all seems very tidy to me a hundred grams one percent is that is that fact is that is that scientific fact uh, yeah, there's some some decent evidence kind of around it, and there, there's been several studies now that have kind of done have gone down this route of manipulating the mass. So actually not not using shoes, but just actually adding mass to the foot itself. There's some actually it was well, one of the first studies was in 2008 before the big boom of of, of barefoot came in 2010, um, and it was a nice study that often gets forgotten because it was before the boom in terms of what they found was although oxygen consumption didn't change um, when you were barefoot with added mass compared to shoes of the same mass, you're actually doing more work barefoot. So actually, technically, you're more efficient when you're barefoot, which most people don't don't like that kind of strap line. But if you, you have the same oxygen consumption, but you're actually mechanically having to do more work uh, to, to, to produce that running style, technically, you're, you're, you're actually doing more work for the same amount of, of oxygen consumption and you're more efficient um, from a mechanical point of view, that is. Yeah. But yeah, that, the, the... That, that story often gets lost. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is a topic that polarises people and that yeah. some people have a, a dog in the fight or, or a financial interest. So they, again, a bit like you touched on earlier, when it comes to people yeah. listening to the science or little pulling from the science they'll pull the bits they like they'll pull the bits that suit their narrative so you i've heard two different people real pro barefoot and really anti barefoot use the same paper yeah. to both yeah. to both defend their position uh, and this is this is where we found ourselves um for the last eight years as, as, as you know um uh, we just had a question in i'm just seeing if it's about barefoot i was kind of expe- expecting the notification just, just, to go just off. before you get to it in i just let, let me just share oh, something God. Let me just show, I don't know whether you can remember this. I mean, I wrote about this really only in 2014, and this book came out on the two-hour marathon, and, and a whole chapter in this book claimed that the first two-hour marathon was going to be done barefoot. And that was only in 2014. So it was only four years ago. So we've gone yeah. from at this claim that the first two-hour marathon will be done barefoot to probably where the evidence is now that the first two-hour marathon will be done on a shoe that's been with the amount of cushioning tuned to the individual runner. So it's that's a really short time period. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was a bit like, if it was going to be someone barefoot, they have to have been running barefoot for for years yeah. for, for it to be kind of normal and habitual for them. Yeah. Um, but I kind of... Yeah, I. I can't knock what that um, barefoot paper did for biomechanics because we've never had, you know, yeah. biomechanics in nature ever. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and your funding must have, yeah, it was easy, much easier to get funding for the next 10 years, right? I was actually at the World Congress of Biomechanics, I think in Singapore, when that paper yeah. came out. So you've got like a thousand biomechanists in the one place and there's this biomechanics paper in nature. Um, yeah, very interesting responses. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of it's one of those ones where you like it or love that paper, but it 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 did wonders for for running biomechanics and actually yeah. people thinking about how they run mm. uh, and and not seeing shoes as as the fix, which you know because of uh, Benno Benno Nig's earlier work mm. that that's you know grown mm. and that got powerful. So now actually people are thinking about how they run. And that's probably helped gate retraining, no end whatsoever. So um, it's done some good. (laughs) If if nothing else, it's given us all something to talk about for the last uh, eight years. A question from Mike, which which sort of fits. And, and, you know, I'm I'm not sure if you've heard the term maximalist shoes. You know, we refer to barefoot. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Yeah. So no one likes the term barefoot shoes because it's an oxymoron. So then the word minimalist was yeah. used and then you know your hawkers and, and the like at the other at the top end with being referred to as maximalist mike's asking where does maximalism i don't know if that's the word uh where does maximalism sit and how does this type of shoe 
um, improve efficiency or influence efficiency. Well, you know, we're probably going to have to do another podcast in a year because I'm actually working with <laughs> a guy, a guy in uh, Memphis, Max Parquet, um, oh, yeah. literally looking at these differences in cushioning using maximalist, neutral, and, and minimalist, and looking at the mechanics and the, the oxygen consumption because so there's, there's very little um it will be interesting with the notion of this kind of optimal level of cushioning that perhaps they're almost too far <laughs> um yeah. uh, it's just it was almost a given you've got too far at the one end of the barefoot and too too far at the other end um so and if they're if they're heavier then that straight away is your answer that mm. you know they're going to be but what's interesting though is these maximalist shoes are heavier but they're not what i'd call heavy shoes they're actually quite light but i i almost think i think we've gone you know barefoot minimalist uh maximalist i think we're now we're sort of in the era of energy return and that's yeah. some people might call that maximalist but i think we've sort of moved on for a little bit from maximalist shoes until you know they're all jumping on the the energy return bandwagon now but i still think that's going to be subject specific i think a maximalist shoe may be more economical on a subject specific level for certain people, but not for others. And it's, it's perhaps sorting that out where it, where it probably needs to head down the track. Yeah. that'll be the next kind of gate analysis in your, in your shoe shop. You'll be um, using some kind of springy shoes and changing your springy shoes to the next springy shoe to see which is best rather than, you know, the ones. I mean, and ultimately the, the conclusion we can have here, whether we're talking about shoes or, uh, technique, you know, in the context of performance economy, is is there isn't a one size fits all, which which mm-hmm. just pretty much, uh, yeah. you know, of the sixteen episodes we've done, regardless of the topic, it, it just seems to be the way we end almost every single <laughs> yeah. live, and, and it doesn't sit well with the general public. It doesn't sit well with marketing of of things. Pe- people want that dichotomous black and white pigeonhole approach, and um, future work and i'm sure you've got you know numerous projects planned do you ever think we're going to get anywhere close to that or do you think that is always just going to be the, the ideal that's never achieved well what a one size fits all kind of oh. well just just being probably not a one size fits all because i think we know the answer to that but are we ever going to get to a point where we can say with, with pretty good confidence when someone comes into our clinic this is the best way to run and this is the best shoe to do it in? No, um, I, I <laughs> until we, I think, I think there's too many kind of moving parts to it, really. I think, um, and in some respects, research is a bit behind the curve. Only now are we starting to, you know, over the past few years, see people actually put individual responses uh, and rather than just going, oh, look, here's a, a nice group mean that showed what I want it to show, but don't worry about people um so i think we need to start actually doing more kind of individual response stuff and taking into account loads of factors not just some kinematics we need you know anthropometrics and using probably a little bit fancier stats uh in what we do if we are to try and get to a point where we can kind of go okay well you run like this you've got a leg length of this um, and so on, but I think we're we're a long, long way off ever really being close uh, to to doing that and doing it well. Yeah. No, I think those subject specific responses and what determines those is going to be go a long way. But it's also possible that um, we might come up with say two predictors that contradict each other. You know, like like it's sort of. Yeah. But just uh, we're just just about ready to wind up, but just make a comment to get you to respond to it. And I look back on all the debates that have gone on the last eight, eight, seven, eight years. Um, lots of rhetoric, lots of propaganda, lots of science, lots of everything. And and I often make this comment, does the average runner actually really care? You know, to me, the average runner just wants to go for a run. They don't give a damn. They just want a pair of shoes that are comfortable. They want to go for a run. So I, I just think, you know, are they really that concerned about all this that's going on? I think I think the answer is probably no until they break. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or no until they realise I really want to finish that race quicker than I did it before, mm. um, and then they start to look into it. But yeah, the average runner that just kind of runs to keep fit, it's kind of. I, I, and that's why I always, when I'm talking to people and they ask me, can I change from a performance point of view? I'm like, do you enjoy running? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, do you run to not think? Like, yeah. <laughs> Don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. 
as soon as I start playing around with what you're doing, you'll have to think about it. Um, and as soon as you start kind of gearing up from a performance or an injury point of view, yeah, you lose the fun of running. So um, sometimes science can kind of, you know, really yeah, in the way. human element. In my, in my experience within, within clinics, certainly the people that care the most are, are not what we call the runners, they're the, they're the triathletes. Um, they care. They they drop the word marginal gains in the conversation. You know, first couple of minutes. They they really really care. So if the question, if the answer to the question, do runners care, is is probably not. The answer to the question, do triathletes care? In my experience, in London, is they care more than anything. That is, um, they they live and they die by it. But yeah, there's been one more question that's come in, just coming on my phone via text, Craig. Have we got time? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, it may it may be it may it may be something that um, doesn't take too long. I don't know. Um, I don't know how much work you, you've done, if any, in, in the the realm of running economy and efficiency and foot orthoses, is he, um, if any at all? But obviously, as you know, they're one of the one of the tools, not the only tool, but one of the tools that we as podiatrists may well uh, use and intervene with. Any any evidence, any um, hints, scientific hints toward their their influence on economy? Uh, I I myself haven't haven't looked into it. Um, I think. I vaguely remember there being uh, kind of one, uh, one or two, which kind of looked at muscle activity and orthosis and, and uh, running economy over kind of like an hour long run. Um, but they didn't find any difference. Yeah. Uh, and I think we tend to find differences when we make big changes, be it stride length frequency or shoes to not shoes. Um I'm not, I'm not sure how much we'd ever really see with, with the smaller changes um, that may come about when, when we put orthoses in, in people's shoes. Um, but it's certainly, I don't think it's got that much um, attention from a, an economy point of view. It's mainly been a, a footwear one. Um, and again, I think it, it almost adds another level of the kind of subject-specific kind of changes and, and responses to them. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think if you think running shoe research is complex, um, I think <laughs> the whole issue when it comes to foot orthotic research is even more complex. Um, and then add the two together. Um, yeah, let's go home. You know, <laughs> springs in a series gets complex, doesn't it? Yeah, um, I don't have any more questions, Craig. Unless, unless no, you do. I think it's probably a good time to finish. It's almost been an hour, so um, lovely. Thanks, thanks, Izzy. It's been really, really well. We've had a lot of people join in. I see Nitsi just joined in. Michael, you've just missed it all. You're going to have to come back and watch the replay. Um, So thanks again, everyone. Thanks for watching. Um, Please head over to our website and our YouTube channel and subscribe to us. Like us on Facebook so you can get notified of when these happening. So um, thanks again, Izzy. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Izzy. Great. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, guys.